You take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. And this morning we will finish a series of sermons. This is the eighth in a series of eight on Jesus' promised spirit. You know, we've covered a lot of ground really in just a few verses. Jesus, in his last discourse, covers some of the most revolutionary and exciting truths that he covers in all of his ministry. It's, it's like saving the best to last. I mean, he's at the end of his life, he's within days of dying on the cross, and he's given them what, what they can now uh, understand. I don't want us to get the idea that he gave them everything, because this text tells us clearly he did not give them everything, because they still could not handle the full revelation that would come later. But he now is giving them a peek into even more of who he is and who God is and who they are in him. And so we started in John chapter 14, uh, in verse 15 through 21. That's where this series began. Jesus' promised spirit brings us from orphans to sons of God, to children of God. And so uh, in that truth, he says, I will, verse uh, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I mean, it's, it's such a sweet promise, isn't it? He's telling them, I'm going away. You can't come with me. I'm going to a place that you can't follow. But he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to come to you. Now, those are words that stick with you, aren't they? Those are words when your dad says, I'm going a long way away and you can't come. But have no fear. I'm going to come home. I'm coming to be with you again. I mean, what a beautiful promise. What an exciting promise, not only for the disciples, but for us. He hasn't left us as orphans. And then we moved into John 14, 22 through 31. We finished up that chapter looking at the fact that the Holy Spirit brings us from ignorant to wise. From ignorant to wise. He says He is going to instruct us in all things. In verse 26 of chapter 14, He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So here the disciples are faced with the fact that their teacher, their, their most trusted, uh, loved companion is leaving them. He says, but don't worry. I won't leave you alone. I'm going to come back. I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. And when I come to you in the Spirit, I will teach you everything. And I will remind you of everything that has happened. Now, this, this is really important that we gather and really remember this is a first-level promise to the apostles. We're going to see that again today. It's a first-level promise to the apostles. It's not directly applicable to your life and my life. Though it has some application, primarily when Jesus is saying this, He's saying that in the context to the apostles, to the disciples. And so here Jesus is giving them the promise that they will be called into remembrance. They'll be taught by the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 15, 1 through 11, that famous passage on fruit bearing, from fruitless to fruitful, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's not calling you to whip up a bunch of actions as we talked about. He's not saying to you, try harder, do better, act like me. He's saying, I will live in you in the Spirit and I will bear through fruit through you in the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not your work. It's His work. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't this an exciting promise from Jesus Christ? You don't have to try to 
attain His righteousness and be like Him. He is transforming you with the Spirit. And now you are having fruit because the fruits of the Spirit have come to the surface. The heart has been changed, hasn't it? We see here that Jesus is more concerned with bearing fruit, real fruit, than He is about changing actions and lives. Don't misunderstand. He does change actions and lives. If you follow Christ, your life will look markably different from what it looked before you came to Christ. But the primary concern of Christ always, and our primary concern should always be, are our hearts bearing the fruit that is evident that the Spirit is at work? The Spirit is at work. So Jesus tells them this. And then we went into John 15, 12 through 17, where Jesus talks about servants to friends. I mean, they've, they have never, I don't think, grasped fully the fact that Jesus isn't coming to enslave them as the Messiah King. He has that right, but rather He's calling them into a friendship. It's a, a remarkable teaching for them, isn't it? Think about it. It should be remarkable to you. The creator of all the universe is going to call you a friend. I mean, that is as mind-boggling. That's, that's unfathomable. That he doesn't come to make us his servants, to enslave us, to hold us down, but rather to free us and make us friends. And out of that freedom, we then serve. What a different teaching from what they have been burdened with with the Jews, right? I mean, their, their religion had burdened them, had in, it captured them, had enslaved them for years, for centuries, for millennia. They had been trapped in this religion of the Jews. And now Jesus says, I'm not coming to re-enslave you in another religion. I've come that you might be friends. What a beautiful picture and teaching that we get here in John 15. It, do you now agree, I mean, as we're kind of whipping through this, moving fast, this is the best, isn't it? I mean, this teaching is unparalleled. It's nowhere else taught like this. This is the Holy of Holies, really. I mean, we're, we're coming to beautiful teaching of our relationship with Christ. Then he talks about the ability to see. The world cannot see him, but we as his followers see him. They're blind and we have eyes to see. Again, a work of the Holy Spirit. And then last week in John 16, the first four verses, we talked about falling away, people that are falling away and Christians who are being preserved through the Spirit. He has come to the world that He might convict or convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we, we dug a little bit at that. And I know there's so much more you may want to know about that. There's so much more I want to know about that, okay? But the focus, if you remember last week, the focus was on those in the world which Christ and the Father had set apart as theirs, okay? The Holy Spirit is coming to draw out those who are chosen by God. He's going to convict them of sin. He's going to convict them of their need of an alien righteousness, An alien righteousness. That righteousness, because he says, he's going to convince them or convict them of righteousness because I go to the Father. In other words, your righteousness can't be earned. You can't be righteous. Your righteousness is in heaven. It's secure. It's safe. It's always there. And then he said, judgment is coming. 
Why? What is his proof of that? Because the ruler of this age is judged. In other words, when Aaron talks about wrath, it is real. We can see it in two ways in this text. First of all, Satan is judged. We're not, it's not a fair fight. God's won, God's won the battle. The fight that Satan now wages is a losing battle. We sometimes get that so messed up in our minds, don't we? I do. I get it messed up. Satan is defeated. We're not in the middle of a title bout here to figure out who's in charge. God has won. How do we know He has won? Because of the cross. When we look at the cross, we see the defeat, the utter, complete defeat of Satan. And it will be consummated when Christ comes again. It's done. The decision is rendered. He is bound. He no longer can deceive the nations. That's what Revelation 20 says. He's bound. Not in the sense that he's not at work. In the sense that he can no longer wholesale deceive the world. He can't do it anymore. He's limited. And the final shoe is about to fall. That's the picture as we end the, the Bible. As we end this book of John. As we end Jesus' life. He's saying judgment. He's going to convince them of judgment. And it, why is that applicable to us? Because no one is saved unless you're convinced that judgment looms. No one is saved unless they're convinced they will die and go to hell. Until you know you're a sinner, until you know judgment is coming for that sin, you will never claim an alien righteousness. You will never cling to the cross. And now he comes to the final teaching on the Spirit in this context. John, where we are this morning, John 16, 12 through 15. I want to read that for you. And I want you to to focus on what he says here. Listen to what he says. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You, you can't handle them, is what he's saying. You can't hear them. When the Spirit of the truth comes, I know I'm doing a little interpretation in my reading but the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, and the New English Version are the only two English versions that I think rightly, accurately, fully give us the verse. When the Spirit of the truth comes, you notice the it might not be in your translation. He will guide you into all the truth. Not just truth. The truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. One clear indication that the Spirit is at work in your life is that you are... It is, is what is the focus of your life? Do we know the Spirit is at work in our life? Well, the question to be asked is, what is the focus of your life? I, I, I get that because notice what he says in verse 14. And in way of introduction, I'm going to give you a little bit of the sermon here. He will glorify me. He will declare to you all things that are to come. He will speak 
to you the things that are mine. Notice Jesus' focus about the ministry of the Spirit is not about the Spirit. The focus of the ministry of the Spirit is Jesus Christ. It's Christocentric. Christ is all in all. Where do so many go wrong in their study of the Holy Spirit? They make the Holy Spirit the focus of the study. The Holy Spirit is never the focus of the study. He's always the illuminer of the focus of the study. He's always the bright, shining light on the cross and on Christ. When you replace a Christ-centered gospel with even a Spirit-centered gospel, we're erring, we're moving away. The focus of the Spirit is Christ. And so that's why I ask you, what is the focus of your life? If I want to know, is the Spirit at work in me? What is my focus in life? I'm getting near the heart of Christianity. Because as natural men, our natural position as humans is self-focused. It's self-focused. This is why the Scripture assumes everywhere that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Did that ever strike you funny? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said that we should love one another. Even as we love ourselves, we should love one another. Husbands should love their wives as their own flesh. I mean, what? why is that always the focus? Because our preset position is self-preservation. It's taking care of ourselves. It's focusing on ourselves. Now, that's not all bad. But when he goes from self-preservation and self-focus to self-absorption, now it's sinful. I'm asking you to think about your own life. I'm not asking you to think about my life. I, I need to think about my life. And I can't judge where you are in your life, but I think you can. What is the focus of your life? And I give us an example of a spirit-filled, spirit-driven, spirit Uh, illumined man who was Christ-focused, Christ-centered, John the Baptist. We know he was spirit-filled even when he was in the womb of his mother. And when he was born, his entire life was Christ-centered, even though Christ wasn't there yet, made public yet. But the first opportunity he gets, he's baptizing in the Jordan. He looks up and Jesus is walking along the bank. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. A few sentences later in John chapter 1, he repeats, Behold the Lamb of God. Look at Jesus. What's driving John, who was running a mega ministry in the wilderness, to turn people from himself to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. We come to John chapter 3. And we find this about John the Baptist. Listen to these words that are found in John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, and this is how we know he's filled with the Spirit. John answered, a person cannot receive anything unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You want to know if the Spirit is at work in your life? Is that your life story? Christ must increase, and I must decrease. Because the Spirit comes not to glorify Himself and not to glorify you and me. The Spirit comes to glorify Christ and to make everything that is Christ known to us and to tell us of the things yet to come through the Word of God. The focus is Christ. And so when a self-absorbed person stands and says, I am of Christ, and the focus is always about them, their church, their movement, Red flags go up, right? And something's not right. And Jesus, in the end here, teaching about the Spirit, is pleading with the disciples to understand, it's all about me. That's what Jesus is pleading with them to understand. It's about me. And He's going to tell you, it's all about me. My biggest concern for the seeker-sensitive movement which is rampant in our day, but yet is fading. And it is fading as another movement, which is even more troubling to me, takes hold post-modern church. My biggest fear, my one greatest driving concern, it is, is it is not Christ-centered. I was reading an interview with Rob Bell who is the megastar of the postmodern church. He's a pastor in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, pastor of a huge church there, even though he decries big churches. He's put out the, I mean, the unbelievably popular NUMA video series, which has sold millions of copies, millions and millions of copies. He's being interviewed. He's asked, what sets you apart? What makes you different? And he said, I believe in resurrection and new life. And I believe that the focus of our ministries should always be to give hope to the hopeless and new life to those who are in need of new life. He went through three paragraphs the whole time I'm reading it. One thing screamed out. One thing. And Christianity Today jumped off the page at me. The man did a three-page interview and never one time did he mention Jesus Christ. Not one time. Not once did he mention the resurrection. Not once did he talk about that new life being in Christ. Not one time. Not once. You would think in a three-page centerfold in Christianity today, the man could find the gumption to say Jesus' name one time. Just once. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's not Christ-focused. If you watch enough of his videos and you listen to enough of his preaching, he's focused on hurting people. And there are a lot of hurting people out there in need of hope. But when you delete the name of the only hope that exists in the world, you can't give them hope. They need Jesus. 
And the Holy Spirit is now going to be in the apostles showing them, you need Jesus, the world needs Jesus, everyone needs Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Not the Holy Spirit, not me. Not this church, not my tradition. None of that. Christ and Christ alone. And so that's where we are today. Simple outline. The Spirit expired. I chose expired because I think inspired uh, gives the wrong purpose. It gives the wrong meaning. The text, the, the text doesn't use inspired or expired. I inserted that in my outline. But I chose expired. And you're, if you do that in Word program, it'll tell you that's a wrong verb choice. You can't. That's not true. But it is true. That's what God did through the Holy Spirit is He expired. He breathed out the truth. That's what the Spirit did for the apostles. When they wrote Matthew through Revelation, they were not writing an inspired thought. They were transcribing and writing and forming and putting on page the breath of God. It wasn't a good idea. It wasn't a great, grandiose scheme that they came up with. The Spirit of God expired the truth, the truth concerning Christ. And we see that in verses 12 through 13 and then the begin, that last part of verse 14. Look at your passage. I still have many things to say to you. These people who in our day especially are screaming about a Jesus-focused uh, the, the real Jesus and how Jesus is Scripture, the red words ought to supersede all other words. Jesus said that's not true. I'm not saying that's not true. Jesus said it. Overly focusing on only what Jesus said on the earth is a mistake. Why? Because I still have many things to say to you that you cannot bear. But when the Spirit of the truth comes, He will tell you all things. In other words, it is just as much God's Word... In Acts through Revelation, as it is from Matthew to John. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon about the red words, okay? <laughs> Although we know that the red words are a pretty modern invention, fairly modern. You know, before, just a few years ago, really, in history, no one paid attention to whether the words were coming out of the mouth of Jesus or whether the words were about Jesus because they believed all the words were from God. So they didn't have a canon inside a canon. They have a scripture inside of a scripture. Although that's popular now, but Jesus said that's wrong. There's more that you can't handle right now. You've got to wait till I die on the cross and I'm resurrecting the sin. Then you can handle more truth. Right now you've got all you can take. Isn't it nice to know the apostles have pea-sized brains like the rest of us? They're not superhuman. I mean, they couldn't. The, the, the mainframe was frying. They had all they could take. Jesus said, it's okay, guys. It's okay. The spirit of the truth is coming. He's going to give you more when it's appropriate, when you can handle it. He expired the truth concerning Christ. The spirit expired the truth of the New Testament. That's what I'm saying in verse 12. That's what Jesus is saying. All of it is... God's Word. All of it is precious. The Spirit not only expired the truth of the New Testament, but He did it in three ways. He, do, he did that in three ways. Notice I'm in past tense. He's not still doing this. Some commentators failed there. I almost did, so I'm not throwing stones at them. 
because we so want to make the Bible apply directly to us, we often will run past what it's actually saying. And I almost did it. I had a whole outline that last week I just had to chunk. You can't fix it. It was bad. It was awful. It was an error. This isn't for us directly. The Spirit's doing something special for the apostles that He's not doing for me and you right now. And that is, He gave them the Holy Word of God. That ain't still happening in our world. When the Spirit of the truth comes, He'll do it in three ways, give you the truth. Three ways. He will guide you into all the truth. How? He will... Uh, he, he will guide you into all truth. Secondly, He will declare to you the things that are to come. Third, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does that mean? The Spirit reminded the apostles of the history of Christ. In verse 13a, we see that the Spirit gives them the truth that they already know. The details may need to be reminded, which is what John fourteen twenty six says. And so the historical documents of the New Testament. You do realize we are the only religion in the world, the only group in the world that claims historical, verifiable truth. Now that's some people to claim historical truth, but it cannot be verified. Like golden tablets in the woods in New York. That can't be verified anywhere. Nobody's ever verified. As a matter of fact, every time somebody tried to verify him, they verified it couldn't be true. He couldn't have picked the things up, much less hid them, buried them, dug a hole big enough for them by the way he described them. The Mormon faith is based on a lie. The Muslim faith is based on a lie. It's not historical. Our faith is historical. I'm not saying that as a proud Christian. I'm saying that as somebody who's read and studied it. We didn't say it was true. The Jews said it was true. The Romans said it was true. Exterior to the Bible, there's proof that what Jesus said would happen, happened. It's verifiable. And so... He, the Spirit, gives that to the apostles in memory. And I think that's how they wrote Matthew through John. That's their historical account. Mark received from Peter, Peter's account of what Christ did in his life. Luke received, I think, from Peter the account of Christ's life. John wrote from an eyewitness standpoint. Matthew also. And so we have this fact that this, that that cannot be argued the events are verifiable acts also is a historical book a recording of the truth that happened post Jesus resurrection and ascension but that's not the only thing our new testament contains secondly it contains doctrine the teachings and he says that in verse 14b he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When I think of this passage, when I think of this part of the passage, I think particularly of the epistles. That stuff they couldn't handle right now, which was given to them later. 
the order of the church, the offices which there exist, the function of the body of Christ, the gifting of the Spirit, all the things they could not fully grasp at the point that's prior to the cross was given to them by the Spirit. In other words, Paul's not a chauvinistic, confused barbarian, which is basically what the world today calls him, if you pay attention. He's not contra Jesus. He's not against Jesus. He agrees with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he says he was taught by Christ through the Spirit in the desert. And what he writes is God's Word. It's breathed out by God, just like Jesus' words. So Romans through Jude is kind of what I grasp as being those things which are Christ, which then the Spirit gives to the apostles to write. And then the third category in the New Testament, broad category, includes the prophecy of the end in 13b, those things which are to come. Now, I'm not the one who came up with this. I see it in the text, and then I turn to others, and I mean, almost 100% agreement across the board. Feel good about that. You feel real good when you get to that conclusion. I see some puzzled looks, so I want to give you exactly how I became convinced this is right. The word for truth, aletheia, can contain all truth. In other words, it can be a truth that a scientist verifies through the scientific method. It can be a truth uh, that you learn through math. One plus one is two. The word in the Greek can contain all of truth. But remember I said it's not just that he says the spirit of truth will come and he will tell you truth. What did I say he said? And and the Greek says, he said, the truth. In the context, he's not revealing to scientists DNA chains, though he does do that. In this context, he's limiting. Jesus is very limited. He's speaking and saying he will tell you the truth, the set of truths that surround me, my life, my ministry, what I have established as the church to come, and when I will come, the end times. He will give you those things. This isn't just in general revelation. We still experience, thank the Lord, general revelation, and we still receive the Spirit as a teacher who does illumine and wake us up and show us truth from the Word of God, but what the apostles received was categorically different than what we received. They got the full set of truth, the truth about Jesus Christ, and they recorded it, and now we have it. It is your Bible. It is your Bible. And just so you don't think I've, somehow you think I've forgotten the Old Testament, he did this for the apostles the same way he did it for the Old Testament prophets. Hebrews says, God revealed himself in various ways at various times through the prophets. He did it through the spirit of of the truth. The Old and New Testament contain all we need for life, salvation. We have no other source of, of the truth of Christ and his life. You should stand firm. You should be bold when you proclaim this truth. It cannot be proven wrong. It can only 
only stand because it is the truth of God. This prophecy of the end time is contained in passages like the Olivet Discourse, Romans chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and various other smaller passages in Thessalonians and Peter, and then mainly in Revelation. But the second point, as we come to the end of the text, I think is equally important. What he did for those men... He did to magnify and glorify Christ. The second point I see is that the Spirit will glorify and magnify Christ. He will do it. He did it for them. He does it for us. Look at what it says in verse 14. He will glorify, magnify me. For he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will magnify Christ in the hearts of believers. Does he do that in your heart? Here's where the application gets hard, isn't it? All that stuff I've said is true, and you might accept it as true and say, man, that's it exactly. I got it. But now is the hard part as we come to the end of the sermon, because now I'm saying, is he magnifying Christ in your heart now? Because when he comes, that's what he does. Or when you go to the Bible, do you find a desired to rather learn about history. Sharpen up your arguments. Get good so you can teach. Or when you come to this word, do you find yourself leaving with a broader, bigger, deeper, more perfected picture of who Jesus is? It can tell you what your individual daily study is. Almost on a daily basis. When you leave your study and I leave my study and we're all pumped up about an argument rather than about Jesus, we ought to reflect. Is God involved in this morning Bible study or am I doing it? Because when the Spirit comes, He is so sweet to show you Christ. Whether you're in Genesis or whether you're in Matthew or whether you're in Malachi or you're in Revelation. It's all about Jesus. I remember I was in seminary and uh, we were in Old Testament. I think Dave and I took Old Testament survey together. We had to memorize all these passages. Every week we had new passages to memorize. You know, we're memorizing all these things and I'm wanting to make A's on the quizzes. I'm not real worried about what the verse is. I'm just trying to pass. I'm trying to get an A, you know. And about halfway through the semester... Dr. Knight says at the beginning of the class, uh, we're not going to have a quiz today. Man, I got indignant. And I remember, I didn't say it out loud, thank goodness. <laughs> I remember thinking, I studied that all week, and now I'm not going to get an A. I know it. I'm going to write it down and give it to him anyway. I mean, in my heart, I'm going to. And then he said, that bothers you, doesn't it? Not to me, to the class. The memorization exercise is not so you make an A. It's so you know Jesus. 
Let's start class. Well, I need to go get in the closet and repent. That's what I need to do. You've never been in seminary class, but I'm afraid a lot of our daily Bible studies are all about that, aren't they? I mean, if I'm being honest. My default position is to come out smarter, to know more. So I don't get embarrassed in a discussion or there's not some answer my kids want that I can't give them. And what I need to be open in this word of life for is looking for the word of life and the bread of life and the light of life and the man and the God, Jesus. That's what I need to be looking for. And that's what the Spirit does because our preset position is not to focus on Christ and He focuses us on Christ. I think it happens to you. I know it does because I hear you. I talk with you in the middle of Bible study sometimes. I, you say things like, man, I was studying along and it was all right. Everything's good. And then I saw this and man, it just, the whole thing made sense. And I just started all of a sudden searching all over, finding all these other references, tying it all together. And you're enthralled about Jesus. And when that happens... You can thank God for it because you're not that smart. His Spirit is. He's going to come. He's going to glorify me. And He's glorified Himself through the Spirit in the heart of the apostles. And He's glorifying Himself daily in the hearts and minds of believers across the world. And the question is, is He doing it in your life? Is He doing it in my life? And so the next time when you open the Bible, don't open it scared to death, but open it saying, this is an opportunity to see Him. Help me see Him. Ask Him and He will give it to you. Ask Him and He will never deny you that request. I want to see Jesus. The Spirit is unified with the Father and the Son. He closes His teaching on the Spirit with one of the greatest points we could make, and that is... Hey, I told you He will give you all of the truth that I have because that's all the truth that the Father has. It's all mine, so I said He declared all my truth to you. Do you see the unity there? This isn't God Jr., the Holy Spirit. He's God. And He is declaring to us the glory of Christ. And so as we end, I just want to end saying that I, I want to know Christ. And I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what you're going through in particular. I know a lot of you are going through a lot of stuff. And I guess all I would say to sum up all that we've said for eight weeks is we have living in us as believers God Himself. And no matter where we are, He is with us. No matter what we face, He is with us. And He is continually, progressively transforming us so that we see Christ everywhere. And I'm not there yet. That's my confession. I'm not there yet. 
But I want to be there. And I really believe you want to be there. And so that's why Jesus, in the middle of this talk about the Spirit, said, Ask whatever you will in my name, and I will give it to you. The asking needs to be focused on seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, being like Jesus. And he will never deny that prayer. He will never turn that question, that request away. He might turn, turn the request away for better provision, more stable home life. He might turn away the, the request about, I want my loved one to live who's on about to die. He might turn any number of smaller requests down, but I know this for a fact. He will never deny his children himself. So if our prayer is, Spirit, show me Christ, that never gets denied. That never gets turned down. That always is a yes. And so our life is being lived through the power of the Holy Spirit focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we end this time in your word, we are very, very...